You're listening to episode 72 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Chat About Children where we chat about all things children and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today's episode is all about ADHD. Now, it's a topic I've wanted to chat about for quite a while now. I've been a speech pathologist for over 20 years and worked with a large number of individuals with ADHD and have found that it is often a case where these individuals are very much misunderstood in the school system, at home, in the work context. It is certainly an area that does need a lot of further education, awareness, and a lot of support as well. My chat today is with Simon DeRosa, and I'm excited to share this chat because above all else, Simon really does celebrate that individuals with ADHD have wonderful and unique gifts to share and to contribute. So enjoy my chat with Simon. Simon DeRosa is the Principal Consultant at Exceptional Learners Helping Neurodiverse Children and Families. He's a passionate educator with a particular interest in supporting kids and families with ADHD, ODD, ASD and PDA. He has over 33 years teaching experience across New South Wales and more recently in Brisbane and Sydney, Australia. He's also taught in remote Aboriginal communities, rural communities and alternative communities and has also worked as a school principal. Simon has specialised in early literacy, boys' education and autism and ADHD. Most importantly, he's a father of four amazing kids and has utilised his other passion in life, running, to raise funds for isolated children with cancer, as well as fundraising for speech pathologists for local rural schools in New South Wales. Simon DeRosa, welcome to Chat About Children. Hi, Sonia. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, today we are chatting about a very much talked about topic, I must say, ADHD. So we're going to explore today, what is it, what is it not, and how do we best help our kids? Now, Simon, you have a richly diverse background, and now you're specializing in helping neurodiverse children and families. Tell us why you do what you do. Well, as a teacher and as an educator, there is nothing like that moment when the penny drops and children get that, oh, that's what you mean, that aha moment. That to me is why I'm an educator. And I suppose what it is, I've worked in some very challenging schools and some very challenging kids. And I suppose I love that puzzle of a child of being able to get them to that moment where they go, oh, that's it. And yeah, well, that's what I do. I I believe that ADHD, whilst it is referred to as a disorder and disability, I truly believe it is part of the normal human condition. And when I work with kids in schools, to me, there's nothing to fix. It is just about finding out what their skills are, what their challenges are, and helping them to thrive and shine. So, yeah, I do it because I love watching that penny drop, Sonia. Yeah, and it's so deeply rewarding. It really, really is. So let's start with understanding what is ADHD. Well, (laughs) what we have learned about ADHD in the last 10 years, has turned our understanding upside down. For many people, it is not what we thought it once was. So it is a neurological condition, and we can see it is now visible in MRIs. 
it's measurable in the chemical level and imbalances in the brain. Often it had been referred to as an invisible disability, but now we have the proof and the diagnosis, of et cetera, is in the DSM-5, which is the dictionary for doctors. Well, that's how I explain it to kids anyway. So it has three main presentations, and that being the hyperactivity, which we tend to see very quickly. It's like children are driven by a motor. Then there's the inattentive, which is daydreaming. There is the third presentation, which is a combination of those two. But ADHD does not affect cognitive ability. And I'm lucky to work with children that refer to as twice as exceptional, gifted children. And so you can have these wonderfully gifted people who can learn the periodic table in a glance, who can come up with unique and brilliant and different ideas, but they just can't get out of the door fully dressed in the morning or with their things or on time. So it's often referred to by Dr. Hallowell, uh, Dr. Rick Green as well, as a, a Ferrari brain, but with bicycle brakes. And I suppose what I do, I, I help kids understand they've got this magnificent brain, you just have to work on the brakes yes. <laughs> so it can be effective. So yeah, that's what it is. It is incredible condition that can be quite beautiful and quite devastating all at once. Yes, it definitely, well, it, look, it sounds that way and it presents that way for certainly for the professionals listening. They can mm. certainly appreciate the way you've described it right there. Now, let's bust some myths, Simon, and some misunderstandings. Yes. Let's understand what is it not? <laughs> oh, yes. I love this. Okay. It is not naughty children. Okay. Let's just get that one there. It is not naughty children. It is not children trying to be willfully naughty and get their own way. It can look like that. However, if you dig down and drill down, we can really truly understand the causes of it. And this one, it is not bad parenting. Yay, phew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) I can talk about that more later. Bad parenting. Well, no, I won't talk about bad parenting just yet, but let's go with the myths. It is not naughty children. It is not bad parenting. It is not screens and it is not diet. These things can add and change the presentation of the condition, but it's not those things. It is misunderstood. The name alone, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, is awful. (laughs) It's truly Mm. awful. It's actually been around for more than 500 years in medical literature and known by some horrendous names. If I was going to rename it, I think I'd go along the lines of Dr. Russell Barclay and talk more about an inability to control one's emotions or regulate one's emotions. It's around decision-making. It's around goal-directed behaviours. That's what it truly is. Look, and it presents differently in different situations too. As a teacher, I made the mistake of thinking, well, that child can play on Minecraft for three hours straight. So he can choose to concentrate if he wants. No, that's incorrect. The difference is quite subtle. Children with ADHD can engage with things they enjoy, but it's the things they don't want to do. Now, people say, oh, but you know, we're all like that. We're all a little bit ADHD. 
yes, we must be all be a little bit pregnant too or something like that. <laughs> but I'm sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I do get a bit flippant and, and sarcastic, but it just presents so much more for an ADHD. Look, it's a set of unique traits that can be, you know, as I said, magnificent and devastating all at once. And I do have some stats that I could go through a little bit later, but those stats can be a little bit upsetting, but I think it's important for people to understand. Well, why don't we have a listen to those stats, Simon? Because, you know, I wonder how prevalent is ADHD in children and we'll Mm -hmm. get into, you know, how the diagnosis is made. But if we're looking at, say, kids, you know, between birth to 12, share some of those stats with us and also share with us at what age ADHD is commonly diagnosed. Well, well, it used to be known as just a childhood disorder. It is now not just known as a childhood disorder. Now, it was that way because, as I referred to, the DSM-5 and the, the conditions that have to be present for a diagnosis, all in childhood. However, we are now finding older adults who are identifying and sharing a history of their childhood, which identifies them as ADHD. So we tend to find young hyperactive boys and Indigenous kids identified really early because they're just so far away from what's expected at schools and in that school situation. Other than that, it can present very differently at different times. The inattentive is very difficult to find. The inattentive condition in girls can, can look like high achievement, very polite, very well-mannered, great in sport, and you don't want to find it <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. this child. You know, yeah. This child is great. In the classroom, when you get one of these kids, you go, oh, thank goodness for this child. They keep me sane. The last thing teachers want to do is find a problem with them. But the inattentive, look, it can be so diverse. And what we find is that girls tend to have different skill set when they enter into school. They have more advanced vocabulary, so it's hidden from the mainstream. They can sometimes mask much more effectively later on, but they develop skills and strategies which serve them for a time. But these coping strategies inevitably tend to not serve them as well when there are increased expectations. So we tend to find girls of the inattentive presentation around in years five or six, uh, the start of high school, beginning of year 11. And the other one is through motherhood and childhood, childbirth, because the increased expectations that these, you know, and the organisation, the time management, et cetera, the emotional roller coaster that it presents, yeah, it does come out. Yeah, yeah it's huge. The strategies don't survive. They don't serve them well. Mm, that's fascinating. So depends on which tool you use as to how many there are. But about 4 to 5% of the population is, has ADHD. And I suppose that's when we give them the statistics. So in a classroom, you could normally expect one or two children to have it. And here's the interesting thing. Only 30% of ADHD is, have been diagnosed. So there are really? 70% out there not diagnosed. Unfortunately, perhaps parents and grandparents and people are thinking it is just naughty behavior or bad parenting or screens and don't do anything about it because of the myths and the social stigma that surrounds it. So having said that, 
we're talking about undiagnosed ADHD now. And when you have undiagnosed ADHD and it's not treated, it is like an accelerator to other mental health conditions. Oppositional defiant uh, disorder is almost a follow-on to untreated ADHD, followed by conduct disorders. You can have the presentation of eating disorders, anxieties, flourishes with ADHD too, because often these children have heard 20,000 more negatives about themselves than their peers at this stage. And that's just not healthy for anyone, mm. <laughs> ever. Yeah, that's disheartening, isn't it? Well, it can be. Of course, with that become more suspensions and more expulsions. And we know that leads to two inevitable and very sad realisations in our society, incarceration or suicide. And yeah, I think if we were to judge ourselves as a society, I think we should judge on ourselves and how many people in incarceration or who commit suicide. And then I think we'd have a different focus in our community as well. I suppose one of the things which I found shocking, I read um, Dr. Hallowell's new book, ADHD 2.0, which is sensational. And it's the first book I've read about 10 years. Where I went, oh, I didn't know that. Fantastic. I think it's really worth I wouldn't start reading that. I think there are some other books. But if you're a professional and you know a little bit about ADHD, I'd certainly go to ADHD 2.0. But there's some alarming stats. But if you were to smoke all your life, you would lose, I believe it's 2.4 years of your life. If you had 26 years, 20 smokes a day, you'd lose 6.5 years from your life. If you were to have diabetes and were obese, you would lose approximately nine months off your life. But undiagnosed ADHD is 21 years. Really? Yeah. I find yeah. that fascinating. Even to just kind of, my brain's going, how do they even equate that? How do they work that out? Now, you might not have the answers there, but that's something that's come up in my mind. Like, how do you even work that out? I know, I know. Well, a lot of this has come from Deloitte studies. I don't know how they come to something like that. But these statistics have been around for a while and we accept that for smokers and we accept that about diabetes, but we're less willing to accept that reality for ADHDers. And I think, honestly, you know, I made mistakes as a teacher and, you know, as a dad as well and suffered a lot of professional guilt because I went back, oh, my goodness, I've been yelling at these kids. And they complied not because I'd regulate them or help them, but because they were compelled, they were scared. And as we're learning now that traditional discipline and rewards and punishments do not work with these kids, it makes things worse in many, many conditions, especially their mental health. So I suppose if I knew then what I know now, I would have been a much different dad and perhaps would have had a better relationship with my kids now. And I would have been a much different teacher. And I suppose this is one of the reasons why exceptional learners and what do what we do is because it's not just the well-being of these kids and these parents and these families, but it's the teachers. Yeah. The teachers need real strategies to make a difference because the ones who care and want to make a difference, unfortunately, this information is just not getting to the teachers, mainly because of, unfortunately, political reasons. Mm. We can go on about that for a while, but I won't. No, we won't, because we're going to get to 
how do we help kids best and how do we help our colleagues as, as teachers or as health professionals? What can we do? Because there is some amazing stuff we can do. And I think for all of us, Simon, we can look back and say, I could have done this and I could have done that. But the reality is we did the best that we could with what we knew at the time. Exactly. And so the important thing is where we're at now, the amazing work you've done and the experience that you've had has been able to or enabled you to share such gifts with children, families and fellow educators now. And so... There is, as I said, wonderful things that can be done. Our understanding is improving. We're starting to know, you know new information. And so that allows us to make different decisions about how we approach you know, our work with children or with the children that we care for. So I would love to know treatment plans and options and helping us understand these, because I know everyone can feel a bit down when it comes to stats and the reality, but that is the reality. And the, and the next step is, what do we do next? What is the next step? So I'd love to kind of delve into that now. Help us understand the treatment plans and the options. Okay. Look, I'd love to. So I suppose what we can look for in ADHD kids is a child who's has driven by something, has a motor. I tend to think they can be incredibly creative, innovative, but be daydreamers. So it's almost like a paradox. They can be risk takers. They can have what appears to be a lack of motivation, a lack of organization, task initiation or task management. Sometimes these kids will have trouble with emotional regulation. Often they're just bored stiff. (laughs) They just get bored very easily. And that can lead to some disrespectful behavior. They can be cognitively inflexible. They come up with an idea and that's the thing and that's the way they're going to go. They do have a problem with time. Time does travel differently. I tend to tell my little kids they're time lords. <laughs> anyway, I have a science fiction thing, but, you know, I'm yeah. talking to people about that. They can have hyper-focus, but a lack of focus at the same time. But, you know, they have deep emotions, you know, strong focus on social justice and fairness as well. So, okay, just something to look at. <laughs> yeah, and there's some important traits to list. Yes, helps us identify. Very important. Get to a paediatrician. That's what you need to do. Speak to OTs and speeches. And as you know, I've got a thing for speeches, but, you know, I'm seeing people about that as well. They're my superheroes, I think, for kids. Okay, treatment plans. What I've tried to do is put together something I call a healthy brain diet. So it's good for all of us. And it's all good for mental health, but it's particularly good for ADHDers. Okay, because it helps manage the chemical imbalance which appears in the limbic system of an ADHD brain and goes to develop the executive functionings of which I just mentioned, the delays in the brain. I mean, the delays in the brain, they do catch up by the age of 26 or so, but they have to be explicitly taught. So medication is a lot different to what it was and best used with a behavioral intervention as well, the two together. So go to a pediatrician and explore treatment plans which involve some medication. The younger, the better, because then you can instill in them the healthy thinking and the healthy actions that's really important for lifelong management of this situation. So is that okay so far? Any questions? Yeah, no, keep going. (laughs) Okay. So after medication, 
because there are a number of comorbidities, things which appear naturally with ADHD, I'll talk about those just quickly. So it's like a set of steak knives. You, ne- you rarely get ADHD by itself. You nearly always get dyslexia, dysgraphia, and uh, sleep disorders. Now, sleep disorders, that's 70% of ADHDs have sleep disorders. So sometimes just getting to a pediatrician, getting some melatonin, <laughs> not the stuff over the counter, can make a huge difference. Because if you've got a tired child with an underdeveloped executive functioning in their frontal cortex, that executive function is all about good decision-making. If they're tired and they can't make good decisions, it's going to be worse. Often I see parents just go, oh, you know, working on sleep made a huge difference to their lives. So medication and sleep, you've got to prioritize that, I believe, in a treatment plan. The next one to me is exercise, just movement. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just yeah movement. definitely. Well, and for a few reasons too, because it helps manage the, the chemical imbalance in your brain. So you're getting lots of endorphins out and uh, you're feeling good about those things. And you're also managing the emotional ups and downs of it. You're getting to a core. I believe that's also important too. And I suppose understanding the limbic system, because this is where you get addicted to things. And you mentioned uh, early in the beginning that uh, running, running actually helped me because I'm starting to come out of the cupboard as an adhd and come to grips with it. Yeah, I ran from Sydney to Mudgee to raise funds for Canteen. And then I did a 500K run, or tried to, to get money for a speech pathologist because there was a seven-year waiting list mm. in, in Mudgee at the time. But it's very addictive. And that's the problem that we see with screens too. Uh, I could talk more about that. ADHDs can be very addicted to situations. And actually, while I'm speaking about that too, ADHD does not lead to increased drug usage at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Because what we find in the older kids is that if we haven't got the medication just right, or if actually one of the indicators is is if they're seeking alcohol or illegal drugs, usually it means they're self-stimulating. They're trying to get a break from their brain that the medication isn't. Kids who are undiagnosed will seek those illegal drugs and well, that's one of the reasons why I have such a high mortality rate. So, <laughs> okay, medication, sleep, exercise, but movement of any sort. With our younger tackers, really like sensory motor programs. Uh, so important because it helps kids work on their focus and their planning. Healthy movement, in my mind, is healthy brain development and control. So exercise doesn't have to be team. It can be by yourself, but just moving. And, you know, I love yoga and meditation and mindfulness, but it can be coloring in. I talk to the kids and say, you don't have to be sitting on the beach (laughs) and doing a morning praise to the sun or anything. You can just be in the moment and practice that calmness. So meditation, mindfulness is a really very important aspect of the treatment plan. One of the other things that I find is important is connection. Kids love it when I say, you know what? I'm going to tell your parents you actually need some screen time. And they love it. <laughs> they go, what? Is that a time limit, Simon? Well, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's the right. Next. Thank you. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I'm very strict on that, actually, because it is so addictive. But they need connection time with their friends, but they need to want that as much as having connection time with their parents and having meals together as well. Because it's the same type of oxytocins that are released into the brain when you with your tribe and with your family at a subconscious level, you're getting a release of all those good feeling chemicals, which make you feel safe and part of something. And again, balances the mind in a healthy way that they might not even be aware of. But that connection is a really important time. So I usually say to kids, especially my stressed 2E kids doing the HSC, no, stop, have a meal with your parents and you'll actually be in a better place to study later on. And I said, and you'll spend less time studying. So they always <laughs> like that too. But that connection with family and friends is important. But I believe there's a spiritual connection. If that's important to your family, then that's something you should be spending time with. And I think this is just for me and my experience is that just connecting with nature is important. I love being in the bush. And at times I love watching the surf roar to help balance myself and just to get back to what's really important. Now, Sue Larkey and I have been doing a little bit of work lately, and Sue's got this whole year on doing something which brings people joy. And I absolutely believe that. Do something which is fun because there's a whole lot of stuff we have to get done that we don't want to do. Unless you're like me and you have the best job in the world and you get to do it every single day. <laughs> we <laughs> all want everyone to aim for that. <laughs> it would be nice. It's hard to be true to yourself, but eventually if you put it out there, the universe does answer for you. Do something which brings you joy because that helps you get through the day. I encourage kids to do some learning and they go, what? Can't we do enough of that at school? No, do something which interests you. You know, If you like your Minecraft, then go build something in a limited time. You know, Go learn guitar, go learn drums because school isn't the be all and end all of learning anymore. And that shift has to happen. But look, I also talk about to parents and kids about having a plan. I refer a lot to Dr. Ross Green's work on collaborative and proactive solutions. Once kids get older, it is probably the only way to go, especially with oppositional defiance. Those kids, if they sniff an imbalance of power, they can't help their reactions. It happens at a chemical level not at a choice level. So the work by Dr. Green is the only way forward, I believe, and that's probably my biggest suggestion. So I have a plan based on the CPS model with Dr. Ross Green. He's got books like uh, The Explosive Child and Lost at School and Raising Human Beings. Have a team, have the plan, and yeah, that will build the resilience in a holistic way. Yeah, and that's really important because we want to nurture, as we are nurturing, fellow human beings. And so we need to be holistic and we need to be collaborative. In reality, it can feel overwhelming, you know, for parents, carers, and of course for teachers, you know, when they have a group of children in the classroom. If you had to suggest a starting point, now I know we've mentioned starting points like seeing a pediatrician, and that's kind of at that early stage of exploring diagnoses and what's going on and how do we best help. But I'd love for you to share, I guess, a wonderful starting point for teacher 
or a parent carer who is just feeling overwhelmed, what would be a one thing you would say, look, just focus on this? What would that be? Relationship, relationship, relationship. I often ask executives and principals that they just find time for these teachers to connect with kids. And and I mean connect, not just build a relationship, not just build a rapport. Often we write and help write IEPs, individual education plans, to help teachers, help kids. You know, when it puts, they say interest, and they say, you know, online gaming, Look about the specific games they play and in those conditions, because that means that teachers can then, in the moment, if before they start to become dysregulated, distract them with something that is going to be highly interesting to them as well. And you're only going to get that through relationships. I've always believed that you've got to go into the children's world before you can expect them to go into your world. You've got to go into their world and perhaps be vulnerable, but that builds trust. That's the basis of those relationships. And if you can build their trust in their world, let them show you around their world, then they're more likely to trust you and come into your world. And some of these kids who are really traumatized, because trauma can actually bring on ADHD as well, that's where you need to go. And for teachers, that connection is, is just so important. Practically speaking, I would get to know your executive functions, assess the executive functions, and work and cater for them. There are quite a number of things that you can do generally, such as visual timetables, letting the kids have fidget toys, etc. if it suits them. Being aware there, there are other sensory issues like a sound, very much like ASD. There's a big overlap there with ASD and ADHD. And again, you get to know that through getting to know kids. To cater for their executive functions, I've actually produced a number of infographs that I give away for free on my Facebook site, Exceptional Learners. Sorry. It's in the file section there. And there's about seven PDFs of things that teachers can do today to help an ADHD in their classroom. Collaborate with parents, so very important because you just don't know what a parent has had to do to get that child at school some days. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And pick your battles. If a child is withdrawing at the end of the day, it may be because of bounce, it might be because of medication, it might be exhausting. I mean, sorry, it is exhausting for an ADHD. Let them disengage. Let them just go do what they need to do. Pick the big picture. Because what I often find is that parents in it for the the long run, the big game, the overall mental health of their child, whereas teachers are kind of forced to teach and make every minute count. Teachers, I think my advice is just to step back. Parents trust you. And with a healthy, balanced kid, that learning will catch up. Yeah. So find some time to build relationships. I love that. And that is pretty much the most important thing. As social beings, we want that quality connection. We want that sense of belonging and feeling safe and feeling that we matter and that we have value to offer and contribute. And that's really, really important. And I know that you do this within your work as well, Simon, is what is that aha or those aha moments that come with supporting kids and families 
that's really what we all want to be doing as parents and carers is nurturing our children to become really confident within who they are and what they can do to help themselves and be really self-aware and building that self-awareness and this is what works for you or this is could be something that you might find or you do find a bit tricky. What can we do? And really including them in the process kind of takes away those dynamics where I'm telling you what to do all the time, but it's rather we're all collaborating and the team includes the child. It's not just the team as the, you know, the allied health professionals and the doctor and the teachers that are working to help. The child is included in that collaboration process. And I just wanted to emphasize that because I know that's part of how you work and such an important part of what we do when we're helping to support our kids with ADHD. Well, look, it's really important. And the Office of the Child of the Guardian is really pushing the United Nations rights of children different to the rights of humans because they know that uh, children have particular special rights. And one of those, I believe, is Article 13, which is for them to have a say in the major decisions which affect them. And this is also coming from some recent inquiries into the treatment of disabled people too. So from, I believe, next year, children from the age of 12 have to actually sign off on all those major decisions, which include IEP. So kids need to be advocating. They need a sense of themselves and what's important for them. And they're only going to do that if we do that collaboratively. And we empower them with the skills to be able to do it. And honestly, I know you probably want to finish up too, (laughs) but, you know, we're not here to fix the kids. We're here to help them shine. And I believe perhaps we have a lot more of these kids around because they think differently. And because of the World Wide Web and the internet, I believe the creativity of these kids and creativity is really just a bringing together of two ideas that have never really been brought together before. I believe these kids are going to find answers to the questions and the problems our world is actually facing and has been facing for a while. And, you know, there are some very famous people launching rocket ships and doing things like that at the moment, also coming out as neurodiverse people. And we know that, anyway, I won't go into them, but they're breaking ground. We need these kids to thrive, not just survive the school experience so that we can get answers. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Simon. Look, there's so much to celebrate. And of course, there is more work to be done, but there is so much to celebrate. And as you said, to allow our kids to shine. Now, I would love for you to share where we can learn more about you, Simon. Oh, well, I suppose if I have a Facebook group called Exceptional Learners. Please feel free to join us there. Uh, It's a group where I bring together teachers, professionals, parents, and we find educational solutions for our funky kids. And sometimes we discuss not such educational solutions <laughs> for our funky kids, and that's just as healthy too. Yet I do have a website, exceptionallearners.com, that exceptional with an X. But if you really want to get to know me, yeah, come to the Facebook group where we share lots of different ideas. If you really want to understand behaviours, I'd go to Dr. Mona Delahawk and get to understand her work and Dr. Ross Green, The Explosive Child. And for practical strategies, there's Dendi and Ziegler who work at developing high schoolers executive functioning too. But yeah, come and join us at Exceptional Learners and join in and let's have a chat and find, find the difference. Sounds amazing. Thank you so much, Simon DeRosa. My pleasure. Thank you, Sonia. 
I really enjoyed that chat there with Simon DeRosa and really appreciated the importance he placed there on relationships and really making sure that we're nurturing the quality of connection that we have with others in our life. And that does include nurturing the connection that we have with ourselves. Now, you can access show notes to today's show at chataboutchildren.com. And please remember to share this episode with family, friends and with colleagues who you know will benefit. Of course, feel free to leave a rating and a review for the podcast from your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for your attention. I celebrate you and look forward to chatting soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich, www.chataboutchildren.com.